I think that's the fun thing. That's why you win bike races, isn't it? To spray people with champagne. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. Yo, welcome to episode 137 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's into winning and spraying people with champagne. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash espoir, E-S-P-O-I-R. And we are starting with the performance probe this week, and probe number one, Risk Perception Influences Athletic Pacing Strategy. So the purpose of this study was to examine risk-taking and risk perception associations with perceived exertion, pacing, and performance in athletes. Two experiments were conducted in which risk perception was assessed using the domain-specific risk-taking scale. This DOSBERT is a psychometric scale that assesses risk taking in five content domains, financial decisions, health and safety, recreational, ethical, and social decisions. Respondents rate the likelihood that they would engage in domain-specific risky activities in part one, and then part two is where they assess respondents' perceptions of the magnitude of the risks and expected benefits of the activities judged in part one. So 20 novice cyclists and 32 experienced ultra marathon runners participated in this study. In experiment one with the cyclists, the participants predicted their pace and then performed a five kilometer maximum effort cycling time trial on an ergometer. Split times and perceived exertion were recorded every kilometer. In experiment two, each participant predicted their split times before running a 100-kilometer ultramarathon. Split times and perceived exertion were recorded at seven checkpoints in both experiments. Higher and lower risk perception groups were created using median split of the DOSPERT scores. So basically, before we even get to the results, I'm going to write off experiment one. It's in novices. They would have no idea about pacing. So I don't really see the point. But as a comparison, I'm going to report the results. So in experiment one, pace during the first kilometer was faster amongst lower risk perceivers compared to higher risk perceivers and faster amongst higher risk takers compared to lower risk takers. Actual pace was slower than the predicted pace during the first kilometer in both the high-risk perceivers and low-risk perceivers. In experiment two, pace during the first 36 kilometers was faster amongst the lower-risk perceivers compared with higher-risk perceivers. Irrespective of risk perception group, actual pace was slower than predicted during the first 18 kilometers and from 18 to 36 kilometers. In both experiments, there was no difference in performance between higher and lower risk perception groups. 
So that's interesting that the results are fairly similar between the two. And I would say that anybody that is an ultra marathoner would be fairly experienced in pacing. Yet they got it wrong initially up to the first 36 kilometers. The conclusions that the researchers drew were that the initial pace is associated with an individual's perception of risk with low perceptions of risk being associated with a faster starting pace. Large differences between predicted and actual pace suggest that the performance template lacks accuracy, perhaps indicating greater reliance on momentary pacing decisions rather than a pre-planned strategy. But you've got to think, you're going into a 100-kilometer ultramarathon race. You have to be planning this out somehow. It's the same as doing a 230-kilometer sportive, a 40-kilometer time trial. You have to plan these things out. But it does say that it's hard to predict your own performance, especially at the start. I will say one thing, and it's a quote from Joe Friel, and it sums up pacing perfectly for me. Starting a race too fast is not about pacing strategy. It's about emotional control. And this study highlights this point that you want to hold back at the start of most races or events because it's the emotion of the situation that's getting in the road of you pacing and preserving energy, especially if you want to do a negative split from halfway or later on in the race. Probe number two is an article from Cycling News, and it goes into Astana's preparation for the second half of the season, starting at the Giro d'Italia, but they are talking about the team leaders, Vincenzo Nibali and Fabio Aru, where Fabio is the team leader for the Giro and Vincenzo is going to try and defend his title at the Tour de France. Both Nibali and Aru have recently spent time training at altitude on the Spanish island of Tenerife, the infamous island. And this article goes through their training. It goes through a specific part of their training. Paolo Slongo is the coach of these two riders, and he explained that Nibali needed a long training camp to clear his mind of the pressure and responsibility of being the current Tour de France winner. We worked with him a lot on what he was missing in the first part of the season, such as the changes of rhythm and above-threshold efforts. Triple training block. So... This is the probably the most interesting part of the article, and it's where Songlo actually reveals how Nibali and Aru were training on Tenerife. And he says that they completed this thing called a full triple block of training, and they did three of them. So he describes it as, they were intense days of hard training. We did three full triple blocks, that is, a first ride of five and a half hours, a second of six and a half or seven hours, and then a third of three and a half to four hours with the time trial bike. The fourth day is a rest day, which means each triple includes about 16 hours of training and 11,000 meters of climbing. When you multiply it three times, it is an important block of training. Regarding Aru's preparation, he is possibly going to ride the Tour de France, but he is the team leader at the Giro. And they talk about his gradual build-up to the Tour de France, where Aru used his time trial bike during 
during his rest days to work on his position. Now we've dedicated the third day of every triple block to his position, plus specific time trial work at race speed. His numbers are better. Fabio has an extra 5 to 10 watts at threshold. That means he's at about 395 to 400 watts with his weight of 61.5 kilograms. That's 6.5 watts per kilogram threshold. That is crazy town. Compared to 2014, we opted to anticipate things. Fabio will start the Giro with 17 or 18 days of racing in his legs compared to 13 in 2014. So they do introduce this idea of this triple training block. And sure, if you're going into a training camp at a certain time, this could work. I especially like the idea of firstly using a time trial bike on rest days, but then eventually using it in bigger blocks so you are familiar with the position and you can produce power under load. I like how they are open about their numbers and some of their training. This is a controversial team and this transparency definitely helps us to understand exactly the type of training that they're doing. Whether all of this holds up, only time will tell. Okay, the nuts and bolts. And today's show is based on an article called Advice to a Young Athlete by Alex Hutchinson. It's on runnersworld.com and as soon as I saw it, I thought this is really great advice and we can kind of pull some things out here, even if you aren't elite. But the article itself is a response to an email from a young elite cyclist who is looking to break through to the next level. The athlete claimed that he needs just an extra percent or two to be competitive with the athletes from the top professional teams. So his main question was what were the little things he could do off the bike to chase those marginal gains. Alex's first response was, good training and talent are essential, so are mental toughness and self-belief. And that last element, self-belief, is where I believe a lot of marginal gains come from. Whether it's belief in your coach or belief in your training you've designed for yourself or belief in the new nutrition or recovery technique you've just adopted, Having a reason to believe that you can do today what you were incapable of doing yesterday is an incredibly powerful force. This is the most important advice offered by Alex. Whatever you're doing now, make sure you're 100% committed and believe in it. If you have doubts, identify them and make changes to address them. I'm a fan of this and it definitely reminds me of Eric Thomas. The greats think differently. The the greats see differently, right? The the greats have a different worldview. The greats, they they approach the game in a totally different way. So I need you to do me a huge favor. I need you to think about what you're thinking about when your effort is low. Because if you can get this, if you can get this, you can get any success you want in life. You can have anything you want in life if you can get this. The next time you give a low effort, right, you give it 70% or 50% or 30%, I want you to think about what you're thinking about when your effort is low. If, if, if your effort is low, you're probably not thinking about the opportunity, you're probably thinking about the obligation.
And when you think about E.T., how you stay pumped up? E.T. is how you stay on fire. E.T., how you always driven? Even in the midst of trials and tribulations, even in the midst of your haters, when people trying to break you and tear you down. E.T., how you stay strong? I keep thinking about the opportunity. Every single day, I'm thinking about the opportunity, and I'm not looking at this thing as an obligation. I'm not looking at this thing as something that I have to do, or that I'm forced to do, right? Something that somebody's making me do. Every time I wake up, I'm thinking, I'm alive, baby, this is the day. This is an opportunity. If you want what you've never had before, if you want to do what you've never done before, if you want to be what you've never been before, change your mentality. And I want you to see that effort goes up when you look, when you look at it as, I got an opportunity of a lifetime. But you should be excited about the fact that you have an opportunity. I don't know about you, but this pumps me up. We all have opportunities. It may not be at the elite level, but if you're fit and healthy, you have an opportunity to take your body further than ever before. If you have the luxury of time to ride, you have an opportunity to make every minute count. I'm not going to get too far into this and get preachy-preachy on you, but I will back up Alex's first point by saying it again. Make sure you're 100% committed and believe in it. If you have any doubts, identify them and make changes to address them. In the article, Alex moves on to sports physiology, saying that while margins are small and individual results may vary, which means you should never assume something works for you without testing it, there are techniques that provide real performance gains. Alex lists some that he considers to have enough evidence to be worth trying. And the first one is supplements. And this is something we touched on in episode 136. My mind is slowly coming around to supplements as a genuine performance enhancer. And this confirms some of my thoughts on which supplements have a body of science to back up their early claims. Alex's list includes caffeine, beta alanine, nitrates, and creatine. Listen to episode 136 for more info on these. I have also just released a supplements cycling performance guide, but more about that later. The next one is recovery. The principle Alex suggests here is using the minimum effective dose. That allows you to achieve your training goals in the next workout. Use enhanced recovery because you need it, but if your body can recover on its own, then let it. When you get closer to big races, and certainly between stages of multi-day races, for example, use as much recovery as you can get. He goes on to say that there is very little solid evidence about what works best for recovery, so use what's easily available and don't stress about what's not. My thoughts are the same here. I've spoken before about how hard it is to conduct studies with compression government placebos. Same goes for recovery aids like ice baths. No solid supporting evidence here, but it's easy to do at home. A good recipe is at approximately 10 minutes at approximately 15 degrees Celsius. More and or cooler isn't necessarily better. Medical grade compression tights, socks for about an hour immediately after a hard workout may help. Massage is nice if you can get it. He does say, though, that sleep is probably the best thing you can do. There's some individual variation, but as a generalization, if you're training at an elite level, 
and not spending nine hours a night with the lights off, you're not doing everything you can do to get better. This is something that a lot of athletes struggle with. I cannot emphasize the importance of sleep enough and sleeping straight through. If you're getting up in the middle of the night for a piss, you need to stop drinking at some point during the day. Deep sleep is where the magic happens in bed and you want to avoid getting up at all costs. Depending on your daily schedule, a nap may help too, but one way or another, you need sleep. It may take time and discipline to develop a good sleep routine where you don't lie awake and get to bed at a regular time, but it's worth it. He moves on to nutrition. His first bit of advice here is whatever the amount of vegetables and fruit you're eating, increase it. High quantity and as much variety as possible. Emphasize leafy greens and berries, but it's not about one magic food. It's about balance and variety. He mentions one advanced nutritional technique that he would consider is train low sessions. This is where the overall carb intake remains high, but certain sessions are performed with low-carb stores, either by training before breakfast or deliberately depleting carb stores. This can be risky as it will compromise workout performance and raise injury risk, so it needs to be approached cautiously and gradually. You can apply similar logic to dehydration, though in this case, it's not a question of deliberately dehydrating yourself. Rather, you allow yourself to become dehydrated during some training sessions, which will generally happen naturally if you just don't drink to thirst. There's some evidence that dehydration is a trigger that induces increases in plasma volume, which in turn boosts endurance performance. Training low is a bit of a shot in the dark to me. It's really only useful at certain times of the year and in certain types of training. You don't want to increase intensity above zone two when you are out training low. Also, you may not need to go out and train while trying to be low as in any hard training schedule, you are going to find yourself depleted from time to time. This is a much better way to do it. Even if you're doing an afternoon ride, for example, if it's a low intensity or an endurance ride, see how you go without eating for certain periods of time and then trying to extend that time every time you go out. Remember, though, always take some food with you in case you're feeling off or you can't hold the power. Not staying in your training zones is a bigger deal than completing the ride without eating. The next one he brings up is sports psychology, mental imagery, self-talk, etc., Alex actually goes on to say that he believes this is probably the best tool we've got at the moment. This is pretty standard advice, or so you would think, except Alex cites some pretty interesting studies on brain endurance training from Samuel Makora of the University of Kent. I came across Makora on the excellent Sports Coach Radio early this year. The interview is actually one of my favorites, especially if you're interested in the central governor theory. But back to endurance brain training, here's a quick overview from Makora himself. Is what I call a brain endurance training. So the, the systematic use of certain cognitive tasks which induce mental fatigue, but they also activate specific areas of the brain so that these areas of the brain cannot adapt to this repeated stimulation. And the result is that you actually perceive less effort doing exercise and your performance is improved. Alex is not recommending this just yet, though, saying, I think it's both fascinating and tremendously promising, but it's not ready for prime time yet. I'd wait until there has been at least one study with well-trained athletes. 
The key message from Makora's research is the importance of avoiding mental fatigue before competitions. Avoid uh, mental fatigue before a competition or before um, um, training session where the aim of the training session is to do a you know high intensity kind of uh, training. So to uh, make sure that you rec- uh, that you pay attention not only to muscle recovery and to energy recovery, but also that you um, uh, make sure that you recover your brain so that you don't engage in mentally fatiguing tasks um, close to the competition. So anything that can keep life simple and unstressful in the days leading up to competition, that doesn't mean just lying on the hotel bed thinking about the race. Find ways to distract yourself, but don't do your taxes the day before a big race just because you have some extra free time. Another aspect of this is training while under stress. In another article on endurance brain training, Alex mentions training in various states. Until recently, coaches and sports scientists believe that runners should be as fresh as possible for workouts, well-fueled and fully hydrated with rested legs. Now elite athletes sometimes do the opposite, train on empty stomachs and tired legs to simulate adaptions that help them cope with the rigors of racing. We're due for the same shift when it comes to the brain. Makora believes fresher isn't always better. The military excels in training soldiers to function despite mental fatigue, forcing them to perform grueling marches when they are already sleep-deprived, for example. But it doesn't have to be that crazy. If your brain is fried after a stressful day at work or a sleepless night with a sick kid, don't follow the usual advice and reschedule the hard workout you had planned. Instead, embrace the mental fog and hammer the run. Yes, your time will be slower than usual and the adenosine levels in your brain will be sky high. You will hate running and life in general and Sam Makora in particular. But if a few months later those please stop now runs translate into a PR, you'll forgive him. This is the same as life TSS, and not just for big competitions, but also big days on the bike. In episode 82, I dealt with this concept of a stress budget, and you can check it out at semiprocycling.com forward slash stress. I want to make a habit of doing training days like this, but know that getting through the hell days when you're on the bike and it just sucks is actually doing you some good. Alex then talks about race prep. He focuses on two things to get right here, your taper and your warm-up, saying the general rule for taper is gradually drop volume starting two weeks before the race with about 50% of normal volume in the last week while maintaining intensity so you don't lose fitness. There's lots of individual and event-to-event variation, though so experiment. I go into my updated take on tapering in an episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash taper. Regarding warm-ups, though, there's even more variation in the right warm-up with very little needed before long events. For shorter events where you need to be ready to put out a good effort right from the gun, there's increasing evidence that a relatively hard priming effort can help make sure that your VO2 is firing on all cylinders right from the start. A common protocol in cycling is a moderately hard six-minute effort finishing 10 minutes before starting. Again, I've got into this at semiprocycling.com forward slash race day warm-up framework. The final bit of advice Alex imparts is about heat training. 
saying it's fairly standard for athletes preparing for a race in a warm climate to spend a week or two acclimatizing to heat prior to the race. More recently, there's been evidence that heat acclimation training can also boost performance even in cool conditions. It may be related to dehydration-induced increases in blood plasma volume, though there may be additional factors at work. You can get a decent effect in five to seven days doing sessions in 25 to 35 degrees Celsius heat. It's something you might do a few weeks before a race. That seems like a strategy that could easily backfire if you're not doing it under close supervision. A more reasonable option might be the emerging evidence that taking a sauna after workouts can achieve similar plasma boosts. There have been a few studies of this effect. The most recent found a large increase in plasma volume after just four sauna sessions of 30 minutes at approximately 30 degrees Celsius, 87 degrees Fahrenheit. If you try this, make sure you rehydrate and recover immediately after the saunas. It is worth trying, especially because it's pretty easy to do. Not the part of relocating to a hotter area or whatever, but finding a sauna would be pretty easy to find. All right, so there it is. It's a pretty solid list. Nothing sensational, but definitely worth the effort all the same. Alex advises to pick and choose some ideas that seem to best fit with your current situation and goals and perhaps address current weaknesses. Make changes to your routine one at a time and monitor how your body and mind react. And remember that all of this stuff is just the cherry on top of the cake. It won't get you far if there's no cake underneath bad analogy but you know what he means get the basics down and then work on the one percenters coming up the most important power meter pro tip you will ever hear after this word from our sponsor This week's episode is brought to you by Supplements Cycling Performance Guide. It's 27 pages of the most up-to-date information on what supplements can help your cycling endurance, intensity, and strength. Just like Rob Webb from the Mobius Future Racing Team describes after using the information from this guide, I don't want to get carried away, but my recovery has been next level over the past week or two. Very little residual fatigue, particularly muscle soreness following hard days. If you want to discover the best combination of supplements to reach your cycling goals even faster and not waste money on hyped up products, go to gum.co forward slash stacks which is g-u-m dot c-o forward slash s-t-a-c-k-s or semiprocycling.com forward slash supplements to buy the guide and before we get too far into this month i did promise one lucky patron of the show a one-off semi-pro cycling t-shirt and best of all a chance to win a custom three-month training plan written by me or a one-hour phone consultation and the winner that was randomly drawn is jeff watts Jeff, I will be getting in contact in the next few days to arrange delivery. Congratulations and thank you very much for being a supporter of the show and everybody that does support the show through Patreon. I really, really, really do appreciate it. And now let's get to the tech hacks and products section 
So, it's a bit of a big line, the most important power meter pro tip you'll ever hear, and I read this on Reddit, and I thought, okay, it's got to be pulling my leg, but it's actually really, really important, believe it or not. So, I'm just going to quote it verbatim from Reddit. Check your head unit right now. Make sure non-zero averaging is turned off. Make sure smart recording is turned off also. What are these two? Non-zero averaging will compute your average power by ignoring all the times when you are making zero watts. This is a leftover historical feature which used to serve as a sort of poor man's normalized power. The problem is that it is reported as average power on the head unit and in ride summaries in some third-party programs like Garmin Connect and Training Peaks. It causes confusion all the time because it's not average power. Power. Also, smart recording. Smart recording basically doesn't record any new instantaneous data if the input is exactly the same in order to save space on the device. This was for Garmin's etc. only that had a very limited storage capacity. Now that Garmin's come with more space, it's basically useless and should be set to record at one second. Some units automatically switch to one second when a power meter is detected. The 500, etc., and some don't. The 510, etc. Also, you want zero averaging on for cadence, so you get an average of when you were actually pedaling, and not lower for the overall average from the times you weren't pedaling. So, my advice here: definitely check these two out. It is going to make a difference. Sometimes it's just in the Garmin or your computer that will make a difference, and the Third-party software won't actually have the same number, but even that discrepancy between those two numbers, I know, pisses some people off. And now that quote from the top of the show: "It's Wiggle Honda's Chloe Hosking." Did you know Chloe's number one tip for on-the-bike dog encounters is the low growl? Remember when you were younger and you would mimic everything your sibling would say until they eventually would go away? This tactic is similar to that. Find your inner Arnold Schwarzenegger, circa Terminator, and growl back at the dog. Thank you, Chloe. Congratulations on your recent UCI win, and keep avoiding those dogs. And that's it. You've been listening to the Semi Pro Performance Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Supplements Cycling Performance Guide. Discover the best combination of supplements to reach your cycling goals even faster and not waste money on hype up products. Go to gum.co forward slash stacks or semiprocycling.com forward slash supplements to buy the guide. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 